You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. Our podcast is now a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We have a terrific history podcast today. Katya Hoyer, author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire, is our guest. She's a German-British historian specializing in modern German history. She is a visiting research fellow at King's College London and a fellow of the Royal Historical Society. Her essays have been featured in History Today. BBC History Extra, and The Washington Post, among other publications. She's being very kind this afternoon on a snowy Indianapolis afternoon to zoom in from Sussex, England, to talk history on the podcast. Ms. Hoyer, thank you very much for appearing today. Hello, thank you for having me. It's not quite as uh, snowy over here, so it's not, it's not as uh, great a hardship as you made it out to be there. <laughs> we uh, we exchanged some emails. Uh, I read your book and and talked to your uh, publicist, your your publishing house, because I was so taken by your ability in this book to condense what is one of the most impactful and complicated periods in history into just a few hundred pages and. It's eminently both informative and comprehensible. How were you able to do that? Well, I'm glad it's worked, first of all, because that was uh, kind of the plan. I was uh, intentionally setting out to try and write a book that would be readable by people who have very little knowledge of the period, um, but hopefully also add a bit of analysis and kind of opinion for for those who do know the period well, so I'm I'm glad that balance seems to have um, worked out. Um, but yes, it's not. I mean, you have to have a great 
deal of self-discipline, you know, not to go down rabbit holes and, and individual kind of, you know, niche elements of the topic and just kind of stick to the to the big strands. But equally try and, and pull out individual, you know, examples and, and kind of little stories that just liven up the the big one. Um, so it's, it's striking a balance between the two, I think, kind of following the main strand, but then also kind of, you know, bringing in the, the colour and the detail um, on occasion to, to try and kind of just exemplify these very complicated and complex matters. If I had to construct a, a Mount Rushmore, which is our metaphor for the four most important things, a Mount Rushmore of the top events of the 19th century, along with the defeat of Napoleon and the North's victory in the American Civil War, and perhaps maybe the Bessemer process, the development of the Bessemer process, or maybe Bell's invention of the telephone in 1876, the unification of Germany in the 1860s and 70s is on my list. Does this time period, does this act, this event belong in the top shelf of watershed events, not only of the 19th century, excuse me, but in all of modern history? I certainly think so. That's, again, a reason why I wanted to write this book. It's exactly 150 years ago last year that the German Empire was formed in 1871. Um, And yet there was so little talk about it, you know, and kind of just discussion of it. And as you say, it is a, a monumental event that just changed everything, really. I mean, before 1871, you haven't got a Germany, it just doesn't exist. Um, and suddenly, you know, almost overnight, basically, the individual German states get, get get merged and form the largest political construct in the whole of Europe virtually overnight. You know, you get a, a state there that is bigger in terms of population, in terms of land size, in terms of its resources, in terms of its potential than anything that's there and it throws the entire European power balance out of kilter and the events, you know, that, that follow later, um, including both world wars, um, aren't directly born out of this. So I don't think there's an inevitable path towards that, but it certainly creates a situation where suddenly, you know, Germany has got to fit into this um, kind of complex network of states and it doesn't really quite fit in. And that's certainly creating a lot of the problems that, um, you know, we see the, the big fallout from later. You say that it's it's not an inevitability that that those two great cataclysms of the 20th century happen because of imperial Germany. But it is a is it a fair assertion to say if you want to understand why they happened, you must understand the creation and the impact of imperial Germany. Yes, I agree. I mean, the, the sort of idea that, you know, you look at the you look at 1914 and you try and work out why war breaks out, um, which a lot of people have been doing. And, and certainly in terms of German history, you know, people look towards the militarism and, and the kind of um, autocratic system that is in place during the war and, and, and see that and nothing that came before it. I think that is to misunderstand what happened and to misunderstand one of the key strands that led to this to this war. The subtitle of your book is The Rise and Fall of the German Empire. So let me ask you, how did Imperial Germany rise and how did it fall? (laughs) 
<laughs> you want me to sum this up further even in the book <laughs> um it's it's a, it's a complex process really in terms of the you know the the rise even of it i mean the idea that that there should be a germany is fairly new it kind of just emerges out of the napoleonic wars so when napoleon was defeated um suddenly the the german states kind of realize that actually if they do fight together they're able to beat even the mighty napoleon you know who kind of terrorized europe for for years beforehand and that lingers that kind of sense of, of nationalism defensive nationalism as i call it in the book this kind of idea of sticking together against somebody else is kind of what creates a, a sense of kind of national identity in or at least the kind of germ of that in in german minds um and when the empire is then finally formed in 1871, that's something that needs to be perpetuated. So there's still very little that actually holds Germans together then. You know, they're kind of artificially merged in this kind of blood and iron um, idea. Hence why I called the book that as well. Um, so this idea that they are together so that, so that they can fight somebody else. And to perpetuate that, you have to kind of artificially keep the idea of conflict alive. And that, I think, is what eventually eats Germany up again, certainly this first incarnation of it, the German Empire, in the war, in the First World War, when it's kind of too much blood and iron this time for it to cope with. And then that's what breaks it in the end. So it's kind of come full circle, in my opinion, um, in 1918. It's war that makes it and shapes it to start with, mm. but it's also war that breaks it in the end. Is it fair to contend that for centuries, other European countries conspired to keep Germany, the German landmass, perhaps in the center of Europe, a, a collection of duchies and principalities and free cities and bishoprics and various other geographical definitions. Is that an, is that a fair statement? And, and why would it be in the interest of countries such as perhaps France or Austria to keep to keep the German geographical construct? Uh, disunited i'm not sure that is necessarily the case i mean the germans themselves didn't really have a sense of themselves as germans so you were if you were like from um bavaria you know you'd be a bavarian first and foremost there mm -hmm. wasn't really a sentence that you were actually kind of in any shape or form in the same uh bracket or, or kind of group as somebody from say hamburg or berlin um, so, you know, that this just didn't exist. Even in 1813, when um, the, the Prussian king wants to rally his own troops just within Prussia to try and fight against the, the French, he still stood there and, and he doesn't really know how to address these people because they're not really easily put into one category. He can't really say my fellow Germans or even my fellow Prussians without listing them all individually. So he's going, <laughs> my favorite, my, you know, my fellow Brandenburgers, my fellow this, that, and the other, um, because he knows there's nothing in the hearts and minds of these men that is going to be triggered by saying to them, come and follow me, please, fellow Germans, because they wouldn't recognize that category. And that's something that only really emerges in the in the war, uh, yeah, in the Napoleonic Wars. But where you're right is that when the calamity of the First World War happened, the French immediately look at that and say, this happened because Germany became a country. And if we want peace in Europe, we do need to dismantle this construct that is Germany. Otherwise, we will not have peace. So this idea of keeping Germany apart and keeping it separated is certainly uh, there again in, in 1918, uh, where Poincaré, the, the French um, prime minister, says at the um, outset of the, of the uh, Versailles uh, negotiations in Paris, 
that the kind of wrongs of of 1871 need to be righted again, i.e. Germany was wrongly created, caused this calamity, now let's undo that and let's split Germany up again. Um, so this is certainly an idea that emerges later. Is it fair to say that the, that the commanders, the generals or the diplomats feared how strong a united Germany could be militarily and economically? And, and were those fa- fears justified subsequently? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, when Germany is formed in 1871, the, the first uh, chancellor, Otto von Bismarck, who'd also brought up the unification in the first place and sort of um, created it, um, is extremely conscious of the fact that he's just created this massive kind of quite scary construct in the middle of Europe that's going to frighten Britain, Russia, France. Um, and he sets about immediately to try and convince everyone apart from the French, who he knows they're not going to be convinced because of the kind of historical animosity between the two. But everybody else, he sets about kind of appeasing them, setting Germany up as a peaceful nation, saying to them, look, we haven't got any interest in expansion or even in becoming an empire as in like a world empire. We're not going to threaten you in any shape or form. What we will do is we'll sit in the in the centre of Europe as the centre of gravity and become like the honest broker, kind of negotiating between your problems with each other um, whilst we are kind of neutral and, and, you know, have no stake in this. Um, I say the French would never be convinced of that. And Bismarck knows that. I mean, he annexes when he defeated France and the Franco-Prussian war in, in 1870 and 1871 to create Germany out of that war. Um, he annexed some territories, Alsace and Lorraine from, um, from France, which he knew they would never forgive him for. Um, and so France kind of gets isolated in this process and, and he realizes that this enmity will, will stay. So there's no attempt really to try and pacify the French. Um, but certainly within the rest of Europe, he's sort of trying to to create Germany as a as a peaceful nation. Didn't he say we have made Germany now we must make Germans? <laughs> yes. I mean, that's another project of his immediately kind of, you know, you create this box for people to go in um but now you've got to convince them that is actually nice in the box and they should stay in it you know rather than leave again so it's a bit actually i mean i've compared this to the us before because i think there are similarities there in the sense that people were highly suspicious of like federalism and having a centralized state that tells them what to do um and so you know a federalist setup like in the us where you've got individual states um was the solution to that to try and sort of create a construct of germany but within that you could still be a bavarian or a rhinelander or whatever you you know where you're from basically you mentioned it just a few minutes ago i was going to ask later but i'll just insert it now and that is the biz the post 1871 Bismarckian foreign policy seemed to have been centered on keeping France isolated. He was able to achieve that, Bismarck was, and then after he leaves, 1890, I think is when he is dropped, dropping the pilot, I guess I should say. (laughs) Uh, How important was it to France to find an ally to try to get its revanche against Germany because of the loss of the territories? Um, It's a tricky one. I mean, they do sort of pay their war debts and the reparations and all that off without, I wouldn't say without moaning, but they certainly do just pay it off and then try and normalize relations with Germany to some extent. Um, 
but this problem of Elsas and Lorraine, as Bismarck knew at the time, you know, kind of just just stealing, annexing those two territories of the French was a was a ruthless and completely unjustified, you know, act in, in 1871. And that wasn't going to go away. But equally, the German Empire couldn't give them back because it would have, you know, raised a lot of um, political problems domestically for them because of the nationalism that, you know, mm. kind of has been created. So that was always going to be a thorn, I think, in this in in that particular relationship between Germany and, and France. And so if if France was given half a chance to try and find, you know, somebody else basically to to work with against Germany, that was a very real possibility that people were were concerned about. So Bismarck called it the nightmare of coalitions, basically this idea that um, they could potentially work with with Russia in particular, you know, to sort of like surround Germany in this nightmare of coalitions, so that Germany has got an enemy left and, and right, east and west of it. Um, they could be fairly certain that Britain wasn't going to be that partner, simply because Britain and France were rivals with their empires in, in Africa and Asia to a point, certainly in the, in the 19th century, where it was quite unlikely that those two would collude against um, Germany. And also the, the uh, royal ties between the German and, and British royal families were so close that they felt relatively safe there. But yes, certainly in, in the sense that, you know, there, there was still French anger and resentment there that never really went away. Is it true that when people would advocate for Germany to to scramble for colonies to create this empire you referenced a few minutes ago that Bismarck said we have France on this side and we have Russia on this side that is my map of Africa <laughs> that's certainly how he saw it I mean he always advocated extremely strongly against building an, an overseas empire just because it, it it wasn't really worth it to start with I mean the world had been carved up between the older European powers and what was left was left for a reason, you know, in terms of the resources that were still <laughs> going to be had or the difficulties in keeping the, the respective territories. So one way or another, if you put a foot in there, you are going to have a conflict with the other nations who've already got the lucrative territories. And Bismarck said, that's just not worth it. What is the point? Um, and secondly, if, you know, just geographically, if you have like a map of Europe in your mind and you think Germany is largely a landlocked country and where it's got the sea is in the north, if you send German ships out of the north of Germany and they have to get out of Europe, they're sailing through the channel past the French and the British coastlines, both within actual visibility. Mm. And the idea of like somebody stood there in Dover or in Calais and looking out of the window and seeing German warships going in and out, you know, literally into Europe and out of Europe, goes completely contrary to the idea of, of creating this image of a peaceful Germany. So, you know, that this kind of threat that that would have posed in itself, Germany would have needed to build up, as they do later before the First World War, a huge navy to, to try and police that empire. And then, as I say, sail it in and out of Europe through other people's waters. Um that was never going to be without conflict. And that's why Bismarck didn't, didn't want that to happen. We are speaking with Katja Hoyer, author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire. We talked geography just a few seconds ago, and you mentioned the nightmare of coalitions. How did Germany's geography with strong countries like Austria, France, Russia in close proximity, how did that affect its history? sort of it's kind of geopolitical philosophy and 
And was this fear of encirclement justified on Germany's behalf? Well, Germany's problem is that it hasn't really got natural boundaries to its to all of its neighbors. Um, that's always been Prussia's problem as well. So when you know you sort of see Prussia as the as the heart of this new Germany, it's you know if, if you if you don't know exactly where it is, it's kind of sort of north center um, of Europe, um, where there isn't really kind of mountain ranges or big rivers or anything like that that could kind of cut off its boundaries naturally. And that's why, in my opinion, Prussia has already developed this kind of idea of a militia um, people. So the idea that you're basically arming the civilian population in case there's an incursion and you haven't then got an army big enough to deal with all of your surrounding enemies. Um, and so Prussia had already started this, you know, getting people to basically sign up for regular military training. It goes all the way back to the to the 18th century. Um, and people would almost kind of be permanently in a military mindset, all of them, not all of them, but but the majority of, of people, basically. And that creates a culture of militarism in a way, you know, that's kind of really ingrained and, and deeply ingrained into the into what society was like and into what these people were like. And that then, by extension, you know, is true for, for this newly created Germany as well. So you have, you know, France, as you say, there's the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Um, there's uh, obviously Italy across the Alps um, and, and there isn't really, and Russia, of course, on the other side, and there isn't really anything that protects this Germany from an invasion and this constant fear of that becomes almost paranoia in the build up to the First World War, um, that if they all invaded at the same time or even, you know, kind of just, just France and Russia together, Germany would need an army, you know, kind of twice the size, basically, of each of those nations. And that's, you know, almost impossible when you think about this, the scale and size of, of Russia alone. Um, and that's something that military um, circles are constantly thinking and wargaming about. So they're constantly sat there with their pickle albers on, you know, and then some basement discussing like, you know, what they would do if, if this and that unit gets shifted, you know, to this particular place and that sort of thing. And it just gets them really used to this kind of talk um, to the point where it becomes reality in their minds. And by the time that that war breaks out in 1914, they're not phased by it. You know, they talked about it for years, literally, and come up with different plans and, and contingency um, like strategies. And when it happens, they don't sit there shocked and go, oh, no war is happening. They go, oh, fair enough. You know, we've been saying for years this is going to happen. Um, and, and they just, you know, put their plans in place. Do you think some sort of because I want to get to I want to get to the Schlieffen plan and, and World War One for sure before the end of the podcast. But and we try not to argue for inevitability on history podcasts because really nothing's inevitable except what Mark Twain said, and that is death and taxes. Do you th- is it fair to assert that some sort of union, perhaps under Prussian auspices, would have happened in the 19th century, even without Bismarck or the wars, that it was trending that way? Or was it trending to be status quo, antebellum? Um, there have been, I mean, Bismarck couldn't have done that against the grain of history. I'm, I'm kind of fairly on the on the structuralist side in that sense. So, you know, there's this kind of tide of German nationalism that was growing was there. Um, But Bismarck himself said still in uh, 1868, so three years before Germany got unified, that he doesn't think it's going to happen in that century. And that I always find is quite remarkable. So he said this in private to a friend. 
um, that he doesn't think is possible. You know, and you're still at this point is 1868, you know, so he's looking at the next, what, 32 years and saying it's, it's unlikely. And then it just happens three years later. And that's due to the specific circumstances that Bismarck created with the unification wars. So it's kind of a mix, really. It was going slowly in that direction. And I think without Bismarck, it still would have happened. But not not when it happened and not in the way that it did. It would have taken a lot longer, I think. So when I was in graduate school, I fell in love with Otto von Bismarck. <laughs> Is it OK Me to too. say that? <laughs> <laughs> the both of us uh he he just seems you know we 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 glorify leaders who who accomplish great things and it seems to me what he he becomes can- chancellor in uh, 1862 after receiving i have this right after receiving one of the great one of the most beautifully worded telegrams of all time uh from uh Albrecht von Roon, i think that says um um Periculum and mora de pechevu, which means there's danger and delay. Hurry up! Uh, beautiful. I mean, who comes up with that kind of stuff these days? <laughs> Nobody. Back in the day. Yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. Uh, he becomes chancellor in 1862 because there's a fight between the monarch William the First, who comes to the throne after his brother, I think Frederick William the Fourth, dies, but he had been regent because of a of a instability on behalf of his brother but william the first becomes king he's fighting with the legislature about the army and who's going to control it and and the terms of this army bill bismarck uh, who i think was in was he in saint petersburg at this time or had he gone to saint petersburg and he was in paris at this time he was in paris yeah. he, was, he was in paris he comes back he becomes chancellor he gives the famous speech the great decisions of this day will not be by speeches but by blood and iron and he proceeds to through three wars uh, a war with denmark in 1864 a war with austria in 1866 and then the franco-prussian war in 1871 he creates imperial germany and completely changes the trajectory of history and he has gotten some grief I'll put it nicely in the last hundred or so years, 130 years since his passing 1898, I think is when he died. And does he deserve his plaudits, his accolades for what he accomplished, but does he also deserve the, the sort of angry scrutiny for what he created? Well, I think, People conflate two things here, what what he created in 1871 and what happened later, you know, long after his death. And he certainly didn't set up, in my opinion, a Germany in 1871 that was going to morph into, you know, what it became basically during the First World War and absolutely certainly not what it became during the Second World War and then the build up to it. So this kind of very simplistic idea that, Oh, Bismarck created Germany and then a few decades later, out of what he created, you know, came Nazism and and the war and the Holocaust and and all of the attendant, um, you know, ideologies that go with that. Um, I don't think that is the case. Um, So he does deserve, I think, some recognition just for the sheer audacity of, you know, what you just described um, and, and just the way that he just did it. 
uh, against all of the odds and and kind of just got on with it. But I don't think he had a particularly noble um, kind of motive for doing that. I mean, you know, the, he wasn't even a nationalist. He doesn't. He didn't believe in a unified Germany for the sake of it. It was all kind of to try and rescue the powers of the aristocracy to try and make sure that Prussia would retain its um, kind of trajectory of, you know, power and gaining more power over Austria in particular and, and the other German states. Um, and so, you know, he's, he's a real politician, the first one, and that's where that word comes from, you know, this kind of idea that morals and uh, nice ideas aren't really what you do politics for. It's, it's doing what is necessary and doing it in the, with the means that are required you know, regardless of the of the kind of morality of it. So I'm not sure Bismarck himself would have even engaged into a discussion as to whether it was right or wrong what he did. He would have just argued he he did what needed to be done rather than what you know what, what was the right thing to do, basically. But there have been historians. There exists a strain of biographical history that tries to not only Bismarck, but to put Bismarck and Wilhelm II and Hitler all in the same sort of sort of basket. And is it fair to say that you reject that? Yeah, and that was one of the main reasons also why I wanted to write the book, because I think what Bismarck created in 1871 was at least a half democracy. As I say, not because he wanted it to be, but because he knew that if you don't give the people something, sort of like throw them a bone, basically, that they're going to be even more angry than they were in the 1848 revolutions, which nearly tore the entire system down. Um, And there's also still the specter of the French revolutions, you know, even at that point, obviously, they are like in the previous century and a long time ago, but but the ideas of liberalism and and kind of bringing down the aristocracy really haunted the aristocracy because people were literally in the 1848 revolutions, like dragged out of their homes, you know, by like lynch mobs and stuff like that. And Bismarck was very concerned about that and, and tried to save the aristocracy, ironically, by introducing a fair amount of democracy. Um, and so this Germany that he creates, you know, the people forget that half of it has got universal male suffrage. All men over the age of 25 can vote regardless of their wealth and their status um, in society, which is incredibly democratic for the time. Um, They hold the budget, you know, entirely in their hands. So they pretty much decide whether the nation goes to war or not. Um, And there is a real parliament, a massive, great big parliament building. The current like Reichstag building, the Bundestag is is that was built. You know, this is a statement of intent from like the, the parliamentarians to say they do have a place now in Germany, which they didn't before. So all of that stuff, people tend to forget about, you know, this this amount of kind of liberalism and, and democracy that was injected in the system as well. And I wanted to highlight with the book that that's worth looking at. You know, that's what failed in 1914. It wasn't inevitable that it would do. The question is, why does that half of Germany abdicate itself over to, you know, autocracy and, and this dictatorship that, that comes into power during the war? Um, so that I think people tend to forget that there's also a strand of continuity there. And Imperial Germany had, what I think it's fair to say, certainly beyond anything the United States had at the time in the late 19th century, had a significant uh, social services apparatus and safety net uh, for which for which you wouldn't necessarily associate someone like Bismarck or, or people who are seem to be so militaristic or whatever. That's that's not something that gets enough attention, but you detail it in your book. 
Yeah, and that's kind of linking into what I was just saying about the liberal elements as well. And again, it isn't, you know, Bismarck doesn't introduce things like accident insurance, pensions, um, those kinds of, you know, social welfare type things, um, because he's particularly <laughs> concerned about the welfare of the workers. Um, he's just but, so warm and caring and fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. On the inside, underneath that picket album, <laughs> there's a caring mind. Um, no, but it's it's really the sense, again, you know, that that there's real danger in, in socialism. I mean, again, this is an element of the 1848 revolutions. Uh, Marx had just written the Communist Manifesto, that informed a lot of the unrest, um, you know, that you see in, in the second half of the 19th century. And there's strikes, mass strikes under Bismarck, you know, the, the SPD, the Social Democratic Party is becoming a major player and they still have a lot of kind of really hardcore socialist and communist elements in them. And Bismarck thinks, right, you know, let's give them a little bit of what they want. Most of the workers aren't genuine Marxists. They, don't, they haven't read Das Kapital, you know, like front mm -hmm. to back. What they want is higher wages, a, a kind of reasonable uh, life, you know, better better conditions at work. And if we can give them that, he actually called it state socialism, you know, this idea that the state takes over an element of socialism and, and kind of gives it out to workers in little portions so that it doesn't destroy the entire system. And that might be enough for them to be appeased by that and, and kind of not strike and not, you know, kind of go out and, and uh, rebel. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today is author, historian, Katja Hoyer, who wrote Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire. It's an absolutely wonderful book if you want to understand 19th century history and how 19th century history, particularly in Europe, has affected us even in 2022. Read this book. And if you don't believe me, then believe Andrew Roberts, who's one of the leading historians in the world who wrote that blood and iron will undoubtedly become the essential account of this vitally important part of European history. Katya, is it fair to say that Bismarck, who basically created the imperial German government, really wrote a symphony that only he could conduct, that the chancellors who came after him just clearly, for whatever reason, weren't necessarily able to work it like the maestro that Bismarck was? Yeah, that I seems... think you would have liked that <laughs> description. <laughs> a, lot of um, what yes, I've, no, a lot of what I've read is he's created this, Bismarck created this government. There's no ministerial responsibility. He's only responsible to the, to the monarch, to the emperor. And it works fine as long as Bismarck's around. But when Bismarck leaves when he's basically fired for lack of a better term by Kaiser Wilhelm II, then it's just not the same. And there's not that restraining influence that, that deep thinking strategic mind that Bismarck brought to the position. Is that a fair accusation or no? Yeah. I mean, there is that he's obviously a, you know, a, a political genius as many people have described it before, just knew exactly, you know, which card to play and when, um, what tone to strike with whom, 
that sort of thing. Um, but there's also an element of deliberately engineering a position where you're indispensable. You know, just take, you know, what you were saying earlier with, with the parliamentary conflict when he was appointed in, in 1862. So Parliament don't want military reform. The, the Prussian king did want it. And Bismarck just steps in there and says, look, we're going to do this, whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, blood and iron is the way forward and he just does it you know and they all sit there and go you can't just run an illegal budget and he says yes he can try and stop me um and then years later has that you know kind of uh retrospectively acknowledged by parliament that that was okay but in the meantime just ran an illegal budget basically there's absolutely no way that somebody else would have done that you know because people just believe in the rule of law and they believe that what you know what you do needs to conform to the to the rules of society and to what you do in, in politics, and he didn't. Um, and the same is true for things like foreign policy, for example. So the way that, um, so take Russia and Austria, they're drifting very, very far apart, and Bismarck is keen to stay on good terms with both of them, which is impossible and would have been impossible for anybody else. So what he does is he kind of just makes secret agreements with each of them, whilst publicly making certain statements to drive them like further apart from each other. And nobody knows that this is happening. So when he resigns, and he previously made the the infamous reinsurance treaty with with Russia, where they're basically saying they're not attacking each other, that was so secret that the other diplomats didn't know it existed. So when it ran out, you know, Bismarck had resigned and gone. Well, it's not my problem anymore. You sort it out. Um, nobody knew that it was even there, it needed to be extended. And by the time that people realized that it was too late, Russia took a front with it, you know, and, and became much more difficult to deal with following Bismarck's departure. So it's also the way that he kept his cards very, very close to his chest and was sort of playing his own game and thereby made himself completely indispensable. And when he goes, nobody has got any ideas what he's been doing for the last 20 years and how the how the country was actually run. I, I, forgive me, but I, I must I must say my tell very quickly my favorite Bismarck story, and that is when Bismarck, who was a big man, he was like six three, six four, and he he gained a bunch of weight and ballooned as his weight ballooned like to close to three hundred pounds, two fifty, two sixty, which is you know even for a man that tall, still a lot of weight. So his family. And I'm, I'm telling you a story you already know, but maybe some history nerds who are listening don't know this story. His family intervened and got him a doctor, a doctor, I think Dr. Swearingen. And he is interviewing Bismarck, this the most formidable man in Europe for sure, is interviewing about his health. And when he he starts the interview process, Bismarck snaps at him. I don't like to answer questions. And Dr. Swearingen replied, then get a veterinarian. They don't question their patients. <laughs> well, how in the hell does someone have the stones to say that to Bismarck <laughs> and get away with it? And he becomes a part of the Bismarck family. Like mm. Bismarck loses a bunch of weight and his health gets better and he, he feels better. How intimidating was Bismarck to other Let's get outside Germany for a second to other diplomats and 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 leaders throughout Europe. Did he have this aura? And I think the only person who really kind of made him feel like a schoolboy was when he was in the presence of Queen Victoria. <laughs> 
Um, I mean, he he. The thing with Bismarck is that he could be intimidating when he wanted to, but he could also he had all sorts of like masks almost to put on and you know take off as he pleased. So, you know, people describe, for instance, that he would just burst into tears when he wanted something. You know, especially with the with the Kaiser, which again you don't really see. You know, a six foot something bloke. You know, do but he he did. He just burst into tears and then you know put on this really kind of emotional show about something desperately needed to be done, you know, just to put that that emotional weight behind his words. Um, you know, and, and and that's he could also be absolutely charming and very funny. So a lot of women, for instance, described that he was a very kind of elegant um interlocutor who would kind of joke and you know be able to quote from different books at the time and and be you know kind of just really charming and, and nice to talk to so it really depended and that was is one of the things I think that made him so intriguing but also physically as you say is huge you know sort of bear of a man really steely blue eyes blonde hair so he looked quite formidable as well when he walked into a room people would kind of just stop for a moment and and look up quite literally um <laughs> and and be sort of amazed by that as well his voice apparently wasn't all that impressive so there's only one voice recording that we've got um but descriptions people at the time say it was quite sort of reedy and thin but because of the his presence and because of the way that his word choice was always literally on the nose you would just get exactly the right phrase exactly the right tone he mesmerized people. So when he started talking, people would just kind of be silent and, and listen. And, and that's, I think, the impact of his of his person is the versatility of it. You you can hear the uh, recording that Ms. Hoyer refers to on Wikipedia. They have that recording. They also have a recording, which apparently is the only recording of the voice of someone who was born in the 18th century. And that is the voice of Helmuth von Moltke, who was actually born in 1800. So you can hear his voice as well. Uh, Moltke, who was the chief of the Prussian and then Imperial general staff, really changed warfare in many ways. But yet he's, he's overshadowed perhaps a bit, or more than a bit, by Bismarck. How important was Moltke, his relationship with the king, and the fact that he was a strong enough personality and, and a competent enough uh, genius in military strategy and logistics, how important was he to what happened in the 1860s and 1870s? Well, as we said earlier, the unification wars were absolutely crucial in you know, Prussia's ascent to, to becoming the most powerful of the German states and then pulling the German states together behind it. So without those wars and without having won them as quickly and as, I don't know, glamorously for, for lack of a better word, but basically, you know, they, they were genuinely perceived by most Germans as kind of like this, you know, glorious event because it was so quick and relatively pain-free for the German civilians. Um, you know, without that, it wouldn't have worked. He couldn't have unified Germany. Um, but equally, the the kind of new element that he brought in, or one of the many things, as you say, he was kind of a, a military reformer in terms of strategy, um, was the kind of just the flexibility in the command chain. So this idea that kind of people lower down could make decisions on the ground without having to refer all the way back up to the you know command chain to get decisions made. That's quite radical and quite new, and it introduced an amount of flexibility into the Prussian army um, that was 
you know, fairly revolutionary at the time. It allowed them to really quickly respond to the situation as they found it and also put more trust into kind of officers lower down the the, um, the, the pecking order. Um, and that really did make a difference, particularly when, you know, warfare is beginning to change, of course, in, in the you know course of the 19th century. Um, and, and you don't get this element of... Um, kind of movement as much anymore as previously so for example in the in the franco-prussian war you've got the sort of siege of and the bombardment of paris for a long time which bismarck really argues over um with Moltke. um and it's those kinds of things where Moltke really you know does play a huge role which is why he becomes a bit of a sort of legendary figure he's one of the sort of founding fathers that germans perceive as such um throughout the early period of the empire and Moltke and bismarck really argue Moltke's like, the war started, shut up, go over here and sit in this room. And Bismarck's worry is, with regard to what you just mentioned in Paris, is the longer this goes on, the longer the siege of Paris goes on, the more likely it is that other countries are going to intervene. And then we're in big trouble. This all leads to the proclamation, I think it's January 1871, of Imperial Germany in the Hall of Mirrors at Versailles, probably the most beautiful room in the world, or certainly in the top three or four, is the proclamation and the creation of Imperial Germany inevitable at that point in Prussian history? Like they're fighting these wars. Now they fought the big one. You know, Napoleon III famously said, it is us who have been defeated at Sadawa, which is the famous battle on, I think, July 3rd, 1866, between Austria and Prussia. Was that the goal? Once they get that far into the Franco-Prussian War, it's clear that the Prussians are going to win. Was that Bismarck's design at that point and that of other people? We have a chance here to create something really majestic, which, of course, yeah. William I, the king of Prussia, didn't, I don't even think, actually want it. There, there's still some debate around um, kind of Wilhelm's particular position. Newer historians have, have gone down a route and say he was actually more complicit in it than we thought. But the traditional story has it that Wilhelm wasn't overly keen on the idea. And he was certainly retained his Prussian identity as a Prussian king, always more so than adopting his new role as the German emperor. Um, but to answer your other question, is it inevitable at that point? Um Sort of. I mean, Bismarck's still concerned about it because he doesn't really know what the other kings will do, particularly the king of Bavaria, Ludwig, um, who's perhaps best known for the you know beautiful Neuschwanstein castle that all the tourists flock to when they go to Europe. Um, beautiful, like <laughs> Disney-like castle. He had a he had a real thing for castles. That was kind of his thing. He just liked being in Bavaria and you know invest in like culture and, and building nice, pretty new castles and that sort of thing. And he really didn't want to be, be become like sort of a Prussian um, uh, sort of servant, you know, kneeling, bending his knee to the Prussians and, and becoming kind of just a vessel of, of that within a German state. So he didn't know until the very last minute what Ludwig would do and whether he'd actually signed up to it. Um, or not. And it got to a point where Bismarck eventually said, right, he's, he's had enough. He, he looked at what the problems were for Ludwig, namely he spent far too much money on those lovely castles and was in deep, deep financial trouble. And Bismarck knew that. And so he basically bribed him. He said to him, look, I'm going to write this letter in your name 
um, and sended to Wilhelm, offering him the crown and offering him my vassalship, basically, so I become part of your empire. Write that on your behalf. You sign it, and in exchange, you get a lot of money, and it solves all of your financial problems, basically, in, in Bavaria. And that's how he got him to do it. But he didn't know until the very last minute, because Ludwig really didn't want to do this. Uh, whether he would accept that or not. So there is still an element, you know, right up until January um, 1871, where there's some doubt there as to whether this would work, because it did take all of the um, individual, you know, kind of dukes and and kings, basically, of the individual states to come together and and basically hand the the German crown to Wilhelm. I did a history TV show here in Indianapolis several years ago, and then... I brought up the same topic with Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and we were talking about the Tudor period per se, mostly, but I'll bring it up to you as well. And the topic of the TV show was most impactful premature deaths. (laughs) And, you know, you had uh, uh, William Atheline on the white ship, you know, who died in the 12th century and uh, Prince Henry, who was the first son of of James the First, and whose brother comes to the throne and eventually is executed, Charles the First. But in in any listing of premature deaths, uh, even though he was fifty six, I think at the time, the death of Emperor Frederick the Third, the son of Wilhelm the First and father of the Kaiser, husband to Victoria who is the daughter of Queen Victoria, his death from throat cancer seems to be almost an endless field to be plowed from a historian's perspective. He reigned for only a few months. If he had lived as long as his father, he still would have been alive in 1914 he would have lived into the 1920s i think william the first lived to be 92 or 91 uh remarkable at the time but how would frederick's how did frederick's premature death and the uh, the ascension of william the second to the throne change imperial german and european history so how long have we got (laughs) three hours i'm not letting you i'm not we're gonna talk about this all day and night i know it's a big i know it's a big question and forgive me but it it just seems to be that fate intervened in a way that frederick the third was thought to be more liberal Mm -hmm. wanted a, a monarchy on sort of the english constitutional model perhaps but but changed things bismarck was petrified that he would get fired if Frederick and his liberal English wife, uh, as he called her, the English wife, uh, came to the imperial throne. Uh, so his death and and Wilhelm, I think, who came to the throne, was he 29, 28, 29, when Wilhelm II came to the throne? That really is a turning point. So since you boil down, you know, tens of thousands of imperial German history into just a couple hundred pages, maybe you could take a few minutes and describe how that death changed things. Well, as you say, the the plan would have certainly been for those two to um, push Germany into a more liberal direction. I mean, not least because, as you say, Victoria was Queen Victoria's oldest daughter, and she had seen her mother with her German husband, Albert, um, 
kind of run, you know, England in a very similar um, way, especially as Albert had sort of come in as the outsider and pushed many of the the changes that were happening in England. Vicky thought, so as she, you know, usually referred to herself as, as Vicky, um, she had this idea she would get, she was going to sort of do the thing in reverse, come into Germany as, as the English wife um, and bring that liberalism in. And then they would, you know, really reform Germany in the, in the same way that, had been happening in England. This particularly would have meant scaling down the power of the monarchy. So Victoria at that point in England had far less power already than um, the, the emperor still had or the Kaiser still had in Germany. Um, and so that would have, for instance, been one of the elements there. Um, Frederick himself is so ill that even when um, he becomes um, Kaiser, when his, when his father died in 1888, um, he can't speak. He's already so ill with throat cancer that throughout this very short reign of only 100 days, he can't speak. Um, so there is almost no impact, really, of his of his kingship. So it's hard to see, really, what would have happened had he had more time. What I personally think is that they couldn't have acted completely against the grain of, of where the court still was and where kind of society in Germany still was. People forget that Germany at this point is a far more conservative country people haven't really got a huge problem on the whole with the way that the country is run if you look at the array of political parties on offer for example um in imperial germany you haven't got a radical communist or socialist party you haven't got a radical party on the right they're all kind of there to tweak and reform the system not to completely get rid of it um and the same is true for the court in an even higher you know stance they would have basically been incredibly protective and defensive about their status. Bismarck had already gone a lot further with his reforms than people were kind of naturally happy with. I think they would have struggled against the situation that they were in to a point where they would have eventually found, I think, that their hands were tied. I think some reforms might have gone through simply because liberalism was obviously a huge thing as well. Many of the Prussian civil servants were quite amenable to that. But I don't think they would have turned Germany into something radically different from what it was. Kaiser Wilhelm I famously said, it, it's not easy to be emperor under such a chancellor, referring to Bismarck. But his grandson, Wilhelm II, who we all know from the caricatures and his role in World War I, was determined to go his own way, to be a true leader, a, a true monarch with, with power and influence. Um, tell us a little bit about Wilhelm II, who he was, how he thought. We don't do politics on the Leaders and Legends podcast. We do we do fun politics. We don't do hateful politics. But I have often said to friends of mine that that Donald Trump is more like Kaiser Wilhelm II than any two people I've ever read about in history. <laughs> so with that as your template, without being political, what was the Kaiser like? Because there were parts of him that were charming and and smart, but that just didn't come through. Yeah, I mean, the comparison that you just made, I try to avoid that in the book as well, but you probably spotted my somewhat veiled attempt to, <laughs> to not make that comparison. Um, the, the main thing that, that makes the two quite similar, and it isn't necessarily a thing about political ideology, it's more about the way that they um, wanted to be seen. It's, it's just an obsession with directly communicating with the people. So this idea that you haven't got kind of boring old, you know, stick up your backside kind of 
um, diplomats and, and mediators between you and the people is something I think that makes him very similar to to Donald Trump in the sense that you know Trump would kind of go directly on Twitter and put something out and then all of the staff would kind of frantically run around and try and mediate what he said. And that's exactly what, what Willem does. So Willem wants to give, for instance, speeches directly to the people and he's got his little script in front of him, which, which people have written for him with the speech on it. And he just screws it up and, and gives a speech as he feels like it on the day. And the Hun speech is maybe the most famous example of that, where basically troops were going to go off to, to China um, to, to defeat the, the Boxer Rebellion there. And he tells them ad hoc, which was not in the speech, you know, behave like the Huns basically did, like Attila the Hun, um, which, which of course then led to this whole uh, mockery throughout the First World War. You know, this is what your culture looks like, you know, and, and all of these images of, of German soldiers, like, you know, torturing babies and all that. And then this kind of nickname of the Hun, of course, stuck. But that's the same thing. And then then Wilhelm's Chancellor, Bülow, kind of runs away and goes, oh, no, he's actually just said that, you know, because they don't have TV at the time. And the scripts, basically, of the speeches get published in newspapers so that people can read them. He tries to to basically erase that line from what Willem said in the newspapers and, and people jeer in parliament and say, well, where have the Huns gone, you know, when, the, when this kind of sanitized speech appears. So it's, it's that kind of thing that really reminded me of it. And he's so obsessed as well with his public image. He'd sit there, you know, over breakfast and read the newspapers and just scanning the whole thing for words about him and what people have said about his appearance the other day, you know, when he, when he spoke somewhere or when he appeared somewhere to, to visit a factory or something. Um, and he would just obsess over the words that the journalists used to describe him and that kind of thing. And that's basically what reminded me a little bit. It's not so much the politics per se, but more the obsession with public image. As someone who does public relations for a living and writes speeches for a living, uh, your your description of the angst of, of <laughs> the government officials is well taken. Uh, but the Kaiser was, in, in some ways, charming, certainly. He had a phenomenal memory, as I recall. Um, but he was ridiculously impulsive and very sort of braggy. Uh, I don't nationalistic. Um, you know, he 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 had a deformed arm. He was uh, he was had a, it was a breech delivery, and they had to extract him with forceps, and that thing it damaged the nerves in one of his arms. So historians have speculated, like, what did that mean for his personality, so on and so forth. He seemed to be alternately very enamored and very jealous of his English cousins, uh, which may describe, may be some of the impulse for the Navy, but he had one particularly bad relationship. First off, he had bad relationships with all the monarchs of, of Europe. Alexander, the Tsar Alexander III wrote nasty things about him, which Bismarck showed him at one point, said he was a badly brought up man with poor manners or something like that. Uh, uh, he also didn't get along, and this perhaps is is more important. Did not get along with his uncle, who was Queen Victoria's son, and that's Edward the Seventh. How did Wilhelm's behavior personally affect Germany's destiny? Um, as you say, this obsession with or kind of love-hate relationship in particular with England, I think there's something to that. I wouldn't want to go down the whole like Freudian thing as some historians have done and, you know, mm. trace everything back to his 
childhood maladies and, and his arm and, and all the rest of it and and also his relationship to his mother which um was fraught um because of the way that she tried to fix him basically so she thought that the this disabled uh, disabled arm basically or that this arm that he couldn't use um was a failure of hers as a mother um and also one that couldn't be tolerated in a monarch and so Call it a villain when he was little, you know, they tried things like cutting a tendon in his neck, you know, to try and and put his mm. neck back, back straight, which had sort of slanted to one side because of the arm not fully developing, that kind of thing. And and Willem took a that didn't took, take that particularly well because he was constantly told that there was something wrong with him by his mother. And I think to some extent there's something to that that, that made his relationship with England per se uh fraud. But he he did love his grandmother, Queen Victoria, and spent a lot of time with her um, at the at Osborne on, on the Isle of Wight, uh, mm. where you would have seen the Royal Navy go in and out of the Solent. That's kind of right in front of Portsmouth um, and Southampton. So both the, the kind of, you know, merchant navy as well as the, the actual navy kind of go in and out there. Um, and that would have, you know, impressed him. He was he was highly um, impressed by the scale and size and, and kind of glamour of the of the British Navy and wanted that for himself. And equally, he had to constantly rival Britain and sort of beat it, you know, at its own game, basically. So he sponsored his own the Naval Cup, for example, the Emperor's Cup, right. and that kind of thing, which, you know, made him enjoy his boat racing and all that sort of thing as well. So there, there is a, an element there of both kind of being a rival but also admiring England at the same time. And that's, I think, comes out during the First World War as well. We have a few minutes left with Katja Hoyer, author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire. It's a terrific book. It's received wonderful reviews. And if, if you want a, a concise yet fun and really engaging history of this time period, please pick it up. World War One. It happens because of one of the most, it happens for a million reasons, but the tiny proximate reasons is because one of the worst wrong turns in history that led the Archduke right in front of Gavrilo Princep, his eventual assassin, who was sitting there crying in his beer because he didn't have the stones to kill him before with the bomb. We don't have time to go into that. It's an amazing set of coincidences powered by fear and military timetables. Um, there's so many terrific books on the outbreak of World War One. whether it's The Guns of August. I like The Sleepwalkers. That's probably my, my favorite one that's really good. Uh, but is there anything about World War One, its timing or its, its outbreak that you find inevitable? Like it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when, because that was in the mindset of so many generals and politicians at the time? I think some form of conflict probably was. I mean, there's Bismarck sat there in the 1880s and saying, you know, one day a great war is going to come out of some foolish thing in the Balkans. Um, it was that obvious <laughs> for everyone to see, you know, that that even, even back in the 1880s, um, some form of conflict would arise. I think the uh, where an element of uh, all of these coincidences do lead to the calamity is, is the scale of it. Um, so the way that this kind of relatively localized conflict between the Austro-Hungarian Empire um, and, and the dissolution of the Ottoman Empire in the Balkans, effectively, you know, triggered by, by the assassination of Franz Ferdinand, 
then leads to the alliances and then, then the militarism and all of the other factors to, to kind of pile on top and create out of this relatively localized conflict, you know, the biggest human conflict that the world had seen to that point, perhaps rivaled obviously by the American Civil War, but on, certainly on a par with that. Um, that's, I think, the, the tragedy of it is, is that chain of event that's triggered by it. <clears throat> but I think some form of conflict was certainly on the cards. I mean, you see this with the Crimean War in the 19th century as well. Um, the fact that both the Ottoman Empire and the Austro-Hungarian Empire were beginning to break apart meant that stuff had to be reshuffled and refigured in Europe on a scale even bigger than the unification of Germany, I think. Um, and that was always going to lead to tensions between the other players in Europe who wanted a, a part of that cake that was falling apart. Um, and I think that is pretty much that tension was going to escalate somewhere, was inevitable, also with the way that everyone was just armed to the teeth. Um, and wars hadn't happened before on that scale within people's lifetimes. I mean, when you think from a German perspective, you know, the last war was in 1871 or finished in 1871 um, with relatively small scale casualties, you know, all done within a matter of months. Um, that's what people thought of when they thought, oh, it wasn't a, a thing to be avoided. It was a means of, of politics and a legitimate one is that people didn't see it as morally wrong either. So I think with all of those factors in mind, some conflict was inevitable, if not perhaps exactly in the form that it happened. I've always found the relationship, the mutual sort of fear between Imperial Germany and Tsarist Russia as the real driver of European relations in the 19th century, late 19th century, early 20th. Is it fair to say there was, there was a mutual fear that, and I think, didn't uh, Molka advocate for a preventive war against Russia at some point in the 1870s or 1880s that Russia is getting so big that eventually we just won't be able to handle them? There's just too many troops, too many guns, uh, a mindset of sacrifice that we're going to have to fight them eventually. So let's fight them now before they get yeah. too strong. I mean, people's thinking was very much shaped and, and colored by uh, the industrial revolution that had taken place in Europe. So people were looking at their own countries, particularly Germany, which saw another second industrial revolution in the in the sort of 1870s and 1880s. Um, and were thinking, well, if the Russians do the same thing, you know, with their country and the scale and size of it and the amount of resources that they've got, then we don't stand a chance. And that's what they're worried about. So looking at, you know, because it was, it seemed inevitable that this would happen to Russia eventually, you know, when you look at how it started in Britain, then what happened to the US where it took longer, but it was bigger, but it, it happened at the same time, same in France, same in Germany. And, and this kind of idea that if Russia manages to get itself into this kind of state and moves away from an agrarian society towards an industrialized one, then Europe is in a very, very, precarious position and that's what they're worried about and that's what they're talking about the kaiser on the other hand with this kind of inherent arrogance you know listens to all of this talk and sits there and goes you know if anybody else tells me something about the russian steamroller they need to leave the room um and, and got very arrogant and and complacent about that and basically said there's nothing to worry about it's only russians you know what are we talking about um which is very very racial in its foundation the, the slavs versus yeah. the aryans and that's right. He does list a lot of people in that list of rents as well as not just Slavs and, and Russians, but he's talking about 
Uh, I don't know what he lists there, like, you know, all sorts of unpalatable terms we wouldn't use anymore, but basically people that you considered sort of racially and, and morally, uh, and also in terms of willpower, you know, inferior to to Germans. So that's very much on his mind and why this this talk of the militaries of kind of, you know, warning of Russia kind of almost turns into its opposite with him. He, he sort of goes, well, you know, let's see, shall we? Um, and, and kind mm-hmm. of just gets into a mindset where he isn't worried about them. The Kaiser. Kaiser Wilhelm II and Imperial Germany get assigned uh, by far, including in the actual Versailles Treaty, uh, the share of war guilt, the blame for the start of World War I. I always kind of felt like the Russians got off the hook a little bit, but I defer to your expertise. Did Germany get the proper amount of guilt for the Great War? Or has scholarship changed? Um, I think well, a lot of that came out of the scholarship that happened after the Second World War. Um, and there wasn't an obvious need to try and draw a link between the two. So people like Fritz Fischer famously, you know, yeah. sought to, to find a link there between why why is why is a large-scale war like that twice emanated from German soil? There must be a reason. And so different explanations were found to try and link the two together. And, and nobody at this point sort of sat there and said, well, hang on a minute, perhaps the Second World War, you know, happened at least in part out of a kind of the consequences of the First World War. It was seen as either, you know, this whole Sondervik thing, there's something inherently wrong in the way that Germany has come about and developed. There have been people like um, Goldhagen is perhaps the famous, most famous example of kind of more of a kind of psychological, almost racial dimension to that. So there's something inherently wrong with the Germans themselves. Um, that that create those. Um, so so these are very sort of post-war ideas, you know, that that Germany must be to blame for both of them because it's definitely to blame for the second. And if you trace <laughs> back from there, you know, you basically end up with with this explanation. In my personal opinion, I do think I wouldn't go quite as far um, as as the sleepwalkers, you know, as, as uh, Christopher Clark has in terms of you know Germany kind of unknowingly and unwittingly walked into this because there's a lot of evidence that um, there was a desire for for sort of people like Moldke, the younger in this case, uh, his his nephew, the nephew of the of the elder that we were talking about earlier, you know, to sort of prove himself, prove Germany's worth as a nation. Um, and also a certain recklessness that I was referring to earlier, you know, this idea that people just didn't know what the scale of this whole thing was going to be. That's a great point. That's a great point. Just about the, it had been 40 years. It was pretty short wars held. The Austro-Prussian war was a few weeks and they had no idea what was coming. Um, but, but Germany, Imperial Germany, as 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 seeming the driver of the war, whether it's the blank check to Austria or the uh, implementation of the Schlieffen Plan by violating neutral Belgium, seems to have set themselves up to receive that guilt, to receive the lion's share of the guilt. And I think to your point, wasn't it in in the treaties that ended World War II that like wasn't Prussia abolished, like just yeah. abolished? Yeah, and that's part of this as well. So th- they were all pretty much in unison, including actually many people in Germany, like like Konrad Adenauer, for example, who would later become the first West German chancellor, uh, who blamed Prussia for all of that and, and saw Prussia as the linking element. As I was just saying, they, they were looking for explanations why all of this happened. 
And Prussia seemed a you know a good culprit for that as well because that you know was seen as the element that brought the militarism and and, and this kind of war culture and then the excessive sort of masculinity of Germany into this entire thing. Um, and the idea was you know you exercise almost Ger- uh, Prussia from this kind of Germany and you get a purer, better country that that's sort of you know devoid of this kind of evil spirit that set is at the heart of it, which I think is nonsense to be honest. As I said before, there's a a liberal tradition in, in Prussian history as well. But the the thing in terms of like the you know the guilt question, there's no doubt in my mind that people were at the very least accepting of the possibility of war and didn't mind it coming. Um, and therefore the pol- policies are very much driven in that direction. That's certainly I think Wilhelm stands as kind of well if it's going to happen, bring it on and do it now rather than in, in 10 years. And that seems to me was the attitude in 1914. Which was uh Quite candidly, President Abraham Lincoln's thought about the American Civil War. He famously said, well, if the tug has to come, let it come now. So let's it's going to happen. Let's get it over with. Just a couple more questions before we get to the five questions. The fact that for basically four years, Imperial Germany held off Great Britain, France and Tsarist Russia. Does that both give you an idea of how strong Imperial Germany was and perhaps legitimize the fears that other countries had about it, that it was this powerful. What I mean, it was a colossus. Yeah, it was, but in many ways before the war, certainly, you know, a lot of the countries around it, particularly Britain and Russia didn't have a a problem as such with it, you know, as long as it wasn't going to get in their way. There wasn't really a desire to start with, you know, to, to destroy it immediately again. And so Germany was given a huge amount of time to just build itself up, you know, in terms of its its economy and its industry. So by, by 1914, you know, Germany has overtaken Britain in many ways, right. steel production and, and that kind of thing. It had the second largest navy in the world at that point as well. So it's just, you know, just had these decades before the First World War where people apart from the French, kind of assumed that it was a peaceful nation. It had a fair point about needing to defend itself. Um, you know, the military buildup was very much in the spirit and the zeitgeist basically of the time because everyone else was doing it as well. This wasn't None of this was seen as particularly German or particularly threatening in that sense. You know, and people had kind of come to see that, yes, Germany was building up a tiny little empire, but that was never going to threaten the, you know, the, the French and the Americans, uh, sorry, the French and the, the British one. Um, so I don't think until the war broke out, it was seen as a particularly as a thing that needed to be destroyed. But by the time that it does break out, it's amassed a huge amount of resources that some historians estimate were roughly equal to the other European powers when elected collectively together. Um, other historians have even argued it was only the entry of the US in 1917 that tipped the balance over um, in terms of the war of attrition, basically, and, and the amount of resources that needed to be flung into the war, um, but that just goes to show what a what a you know economic colossus Germany had become by 1914. Ludendorff famously said, after the United States entered the war, "We cannot fight the whole world." Yeah, they should have thought of that in 1914, <laughs> shouldn't they? <laughs> Can you think of another dynasty in history that made such an impact on world history, world affairs? as the Hohenzollerns did in that 40-some year period between 1871 and 1918 when the Kaiser has to abdicate? 
Well, I think we're a bit sort of coloured by our recent history, aren't we, in that sense? Because we're kind of just looking at at the events that came shortly before us. But then when you look at, you know, the hundreds of years of the Romanos, for example, mm-hmm. you know, and, and collate these things together and the amount of, of power that they wielded in, in Russia until they were so brutally disposed, I would say, you know, collectively, that's that's quite a, a big influence of what's on what's happening in, in Europe as well. Or take somebody like, you know, Henry VIII and his church reforms just in one go, you know, sort of creating a, a sort of Protestantism in England that was then projected out onto the world, um, particularly America, of course, um, which is also, you know, a lasting impact to today. And that's just down to the fact, you know, that you wanted a, an heir basically and needed to, to uh, get rid of the Catholic Church for that reason in England. So, you know, it's, it's kind of little things sometimes like that and how you measure the the impact of it. Last question before we get to the five questions. I always thought it was kind of an interesting, not a coincidence perhaps, but maybe a happenstance of history that Empress Eugenie, who was married to Napoleon III, who pushed hard for France to whack Prussia in 1870-71, and she ended up losing and they fled to England, that she lived long enough to see France avenged. She died in 1920. Conversely, Wilhelm II, who fled to the Netherlands in exile, lived long enough. He lived to 1941 to see Germany avenged. What do you think was going through their minds as these, these, these historical turnabouts were happening? Well, in the case of Wilhelm, I can give you a definite answer because he congratulated uh, Hitler on the uh, on the invasion of France and, and sort of saw it as a you know sort of fair retribution, um, which is quite interesting, really, because he had. I mean, he, you know, this debate is, at the moment is going on in Germany because the current Prince of Prussia, as he still styles himself, um, wants a lot of his property back and is fighting a le- legal battle to get that back, which was confiscated after the Second World War. And to do that, there's a law in Germany. You've got to prove that your family didn't help um, let the Nazis into power. So there's a, it's a huge debate at the moment around the Hohenzollerns and their their relationship to the Nazis. And, and, one and of the things- just very quickly, you wrote the article. Where 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 can the leaders and legends audience find this article? Because I I just read it last night. Oh, did you? <laughs> uh, the the Spectator. I wrote it for the Spectator. So if you Google something like Wilhelm, my name, and the Spectator, you probably <laughs> it probably comes up. Um, but yeah, so that that's in you know in terms of. Wilhelm II's relationship to the Nazis, he was quite critical from the off. He had a very, very um, kind of low opinion of Hitler. He just saw him as a, you know, there's a lot of social arrogance involved in it as well. He was just sure. like this jumped up Austrian, basically, whilst he was Prussian nobility and all the rest of that. Um, he was also mortally embarrassed and and um, uh, shocked by the Nuremberg laws um, that that sort of outlawed Jewish citizenship and introduced all of these race laws. But then when Hitler invaded France, he just couldn't help himself, you know, <laughs> but sit there and, and sort of cheer and say this this is the reverse of of what I you know kind of failed to do um, and and congratulated Hitler. And that's something that really tore the legacy of the Hohenzollerns down quite a bit in in kind of history because that's the thing that people tend to focus on. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. Ms. Hoyer, I are you ready? 
<laughs> yeah, I hope so. <laughs> what was your first job? Uh, it's a bit geeky. I, I worked in as like IT a technician kind of thing so I've like, I was like building computers and repairing them for people like back in the day when they still had like Windows 98 and, and would come up with blue screens and stuff so I'd go like around all people's houses and fix their computers for them in which town which country uh, back in Germany still what was your first concert um I don't know if that means anything to people it was Wolfgang Petri who's like a German pop singer really cheesy um maybe maybe I, I should tell you about my first english one which um in england which i really enjoyed that was brian wilson um came over to do his pet sounds tour in 2016 and i just thought he's a living piece of music history how is he sat there singing this um you know this was this was the anniversary tour of pet sounds and i was absolutely mesmerized by by him sitting on the stage and singing it if you could suggest any book for someone to read which book would you choose? I cause it's not a history one because I thought I'd be a bit lame. <laughs> uh, I really enjoyed the soul of an octopus by uh, Simon Gomery, which completely changed my mind about perception and how you see the world. It's basically how octopuses see the world and perceive it with their like 74 different brain lobes and how they can like smell with their skin and stuff like that is it's really interesting because it just changes the way that you see the thinking if i was an octopus the world would be an entirely different place now this question is somewhat unfair to historians but in reading an interview uh, with you in which you were given a bunch of questions you gave kind of the answer to this uh, let me see if it's the same one you were given i think it might have been bbc history or history now they asked a bunch of questions that are kind of like these and you gave answers and i've i saw that you've kind of answered this so let me see if you could witness any event in history be there as it happens which event would you choose did i say about um the prussian queen louise and her meeting with napoleon yeah that is definitely a contender because she was supposed to have negotiated with napoleon at tilsit um right and, and there are various different, Napoleon always like slagged her off afterwards and said, oh, you know, she was trying to seduce him and, and he wouldn't. And, you know, uh, basically tried to, to play this meeting down. But equally, he said before she was the only man in Prussia, you know, That's he, he took her seriously. And she <laughs> That's actually right. had, she did have balls. I mean, she was one of the kind of, I would say, founding mothers of, of both Prussian and, and kind of German um history in many ways so I've, I've, i'm always intrigued what actually happened in that tent but what i was going to say to you <laughs> is a slightly is my my second favorite i'd say is is the battle of leipzig in in 1813 it was the largest battle before the outbreak of the first world war um and i just think that's as close as you're going to get to something like lord of the Rings style you know it's, it's huge but at the same time, it hasn't got like machine guns and, you know, modern kind of weaponry that you'd associate with the First World War. So you've got like horses and drums and, you know, people blowing horns to communicate with their armies and that sort of stuff. So I'd, I'd love to have seen that. That's a terrific answer. Absolutely right. Uh, last one. You wouldn't want to see uh, uh, Bismarck's interview with Queen Victoria? Oh, maybe yeah, actually meeting <laughs> but if you'd asked the last question about meeting somebody about a person in the past Bismarck would definitely have been my my choice if you could have dinner with anyone living today two hours off the record whom would you choose the queen <laughs> 
just because she's supposed to be incredibly funny, um, you know, in, in sort of private. And also because she's met people from like Winston Churchill, you know, to now, she must have just gathered so many things. I'm, I'm not sure two hours would be enough, but she must, what she's sort of seen and, and heard and witnessed in her life. She must be a fascinating person to talk to. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been Katja Hoyer, author of Blood and Iron, The Rise and Fall of the German Empire. It's a marvelous book. It's been described as brisk, thoughtful, and thoroughly engaging. And it's definitely all three of those. Plus, you as a guest on the podcast have been wonderful. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. Mm-hmm.